everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update for episode 106. Today, I'm going to be introducing our featured species of the month, my favorite, American black walnut. And I've got a question about why walnut tends to be so thirsty when it comes to finishing. We're going to talk a little bit about kiln-dried and air-dried differences. Certainly touched on that before, but I'm going to dive in a little bit deeper. And we're going to visit the infamous sticker stain. So stay tuned. Should be a fun episode. But first, I do want to say thank you to everybody who's been sending in questions lately. My inbox is overflowing, and I greatly appreciate that. It's always nice to be uh, able to have so many things to pick and choose from as I play in these shows. And I also want to say thanks to those of you who have sponsored this show. I had quite a few new patrons lately. If you are interested in sponsoring the show, of course, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. And uh, well, actually this episode, I will be talking about the featured species of the munch, which means those of you who are walnut tier supporters are going to be getting a fancy sticker in the mail about well, ironically, this month, it's about walnut, my favorite species. So as always, thank you folks for, for the support. And please keep the questions coming. Go to lumberupdate.com. There's a contact form there where you can submit uh, questions there or just go to send an email to lumberupdate at gmail.com and you can get your questions to me that way. So keep those coming. Let's talk a little industry news before we get into the um, featured species. I feel like I should have the theme music to Jurassic Park playing in the background for this because all of my industry stories have to do with gene editing. Um, first and foremost, um, there are a couple scientists at North Carolina State University who are using CRISPR uh, gene editing system to produce more sustainable trees. So I'm certainly not a geneticist, but this is particularly interesting. CRISPR, it's actually... Um, it's not the drawer in your refrigerator. Um, it is uh, an acronym. Uh, I couldn't tell you what it stands for. I know palindrome is the P in there, but essentially they are palindrome-like genetic strings that um, things like bacteria use to fight off viruses. So uh, bacteria is attacked by a virus and that bacteria takes part of the virus's DNA and it incorporates it into its own DNA so that it remembers that virus and it helps it fight it off better in the future. I liken this to like cookies on your browser. You know, you go to Amazon, you look at a, a particular product, you go do some other stuff and you go back to Amazon and Amazon says, hey, you were interested in this product before, are you still interested? Or that thing where you go away to another page and you see ads for that, whatever it was you were looking at all over other sites. So that's the best metaphor I can come up with. Again, I am so not a geneticist, but the idea is you can use this CRISPR technique in species like poplar in order to reduce or change the ratio of carbohydrate to lignin and produce a tree that is uh, like a better pulp tree with less waste factor. Um, if you've ever been to a paper mill or anywhere near a paper mill, that god-awful smell is essentially the lignin, the waste product in producing paper. If you can produce a tree through gene editing that is essentially purpose-built for paper, a, it's not using up good trees to make paper, and it's also producing less waste. Um, this technique has more legs to it than just producing pulp. 
but really it could be used to create trees that could possibly grow faster. Um, and here, the difference in this gene editing, because I'm hearing, again, all the people quoting Jurassic Park saying, you know, look what happened there. And you create a super species that, you know, takes over the world and rises up just like the AI is going to do. This could be used in small, like, plantations specifically where this is grown just for paper or this is just grown for studs. It's particularly interesting, which kind of leads me on to my next story on Another, and now this is not CRISPR technology, but this is in reference to the American chestnut. I've certainly talked about foundations trying to revive the chestnut a couple times. Well, now there are some new studies coming out on genetic alterations where just one little kind of tweak in the genome can not, not necessarily allow the chestnut to be immune to the, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting what it was now. Was it a fungus? Um, that, that took out the chestnut. I want to say it was a fungus and I'm never going to remember the name of that fungus, but um, rather than being outright immune to it, but build uh, the ability to fight it. So similar to the CRISPR idea where you're, you're like hijacking part of the DNA in order to better fight that virus, this is genetic alteration that allows the chestnut to fight off um, the... the um, the virus, or excuse me, the fungus. It's kind of interesting because it's a different take than what some of the American Chestnut Foundation things have done in the past. And I'd be curious to see where this goes and could there be cross-pollination, ha, pun intended, to be used for things like the walnut trees and thousand canker disease or the, you know, fighting off the emerald ash borer with the, the, um, the ash or possibly the, the Dutch elm blight and Dutch elm disease to, to bring back some of the elms. You know, the chestnut was an amazing species, huge species. When you talk about global warming and carbon sequestration, those huge chestnut trees would go a long, long way. The elm tree, considering how fast it grows, would be another great candidate to combat global warming. And as we look at possibly losing our ash trees from the forest, well, very similar to ash from a woodworker's perspective is chestnut, not as white as ash, but certainly uh, in that kind of oaky, open-poured, ring-porous wood um, family, chestnut would be a great response to that. And um, this could be interesting to see. Again, I'm not a geneticist. I don't really speak from an informed point of view about what happens if you create these super species. So if there are folks out there that do know what they're talking about, I'd love to hear from you um, because this is becoming, it's coming across my desk more and more as more people are doing studies about gene editing and trees to bring back some trees, but also to produce trees that will be more sustainable and frankly, prevent us from going in and cutting like old growth forests. When we have specialty grown um, plantations for specific products, it can solve a lot of problems. At least on paper, it does. So let's move on to the featured species of the month. I've tried to highlight a more common species and then highlight some lesser known species and then bring back some common species. And I want the featured species of the month just to be about stuff that you never heard of. More importantly, stuff that you will have trouble getting. Uh, I talked about um, Polonia in the past. That certainly is not as common as something like cherry, the first species I highlighted, but it is gettable most places of North America and certainly places abroad. Beach is hardly an unusual species, but I did talk specifically about European beach. So that's kind of the idea. I will be trying to switch off more obscure species with more common species. And this month, walnut. 
pretty common, but also a lot to talk about. Black walnut, specifically um, Juglans nigra, is the species I'm talking about here. This is my absolute favorite species to work. From a hand tool woodworker perspective, it works beautifully. Um, of course, that lovely chocolate brown color, everybody loves it. It's super, super luxurious when it comes to building furniture out of walnut. It immediately says this is high quality. Um, and it's just such a joy to work with, both hand tools and power tools. Um, in fact, during like, you know, colonization of North America during the 18th century, immediately thinking of things like mahogany and mahogany from South America and Central America was being used. But black walnut was actually one of the larger exports from the British colonies at the time. And uh, furniture styles were heavily driven towards walnut. Walnut became actually more popular than mahogany for a period of time there. And um, I talked about this on a Thanksgiving episode about how the, the pilgrims on the Mayflower were lumbermen. They were hired by lumber companies to come out and do prospecting. And walnut was one of the things that they started bringing back in droves because mahogany at that point, eh, they'd been bringing mahogany back since the age of Columbus. You know, for 100 years, walnut was the next big thing. And it became the most popular species in Europe for quite some time. Now, of course, there is English walnut, Juglans regia, or French walnut, or European walnut, or English walnut. It's all kind of the same thing. Similar to American black walnut, English walnut's going to be a little bit harder, a little bit denser, somewhat darker than, than American black walnut. What I like about black walnut is it is lighter. It's more milk chocolate than dark chocolate, but it's also got a lot of character to it. Ultimately, it's kind of a gnarly tree. Like if it grows in a field, it's going to branch very quickly. It's going to have a lot of swirly grain to it. It's got a lot of chemicals in the wood itself that lend to wild color. You know, we immediately think of that brown color, but you also can find kind of purple hues and green hues and gray hues. And certainly the sapwood is very creamy white, but you'll get some of that kind of creamy color integrating into the tree itself. It's got a lot more interest to it in the swirling grain and the colors than the European walnuts. If, however, grown in a forest or under a canopy, it will shoot straight up. It's looking for the light. So it will shoot straight up and not branch at all. So it can be fantastic lumber wood in a forest because you get that long straight bowl perfect for making boards out of. One of the interesting things about all the chemical composition and everything that, that creates all those colors is you actually, when you fell walnut, um, and even after you've sawn it at a board, you want to let it sit um, to kind of oxidize and bring up some of the color. When you freshly saw walnut, a lot of times it may not have some of those colors and it actually gets more colorful as it oxidizes. Now, at the same time, if you're trying to keep that color down, this is also one of those instances where you want to take it into a kiln as soon as you can to help control some of that. But certainly there is some merit to letting walnut season in board form before you put it in a kiln and kind of set the colors in place. One of the things about commercial walnut that is very, very common to steam it. And I've spoken on actually several episodes in the past about steaming walnut. Brief recap, you steam walnut in order to extend the heartwood into the sapwood and in order to unify the variety of colors. You know, to the average hobby woodworker, to the average one-off furniture maker, they're looking for character. They're looking for that really interesting board. They love the purples and the greens and the browns that are in walnut. For the commercial 
commercial flooring guy or millwork guy, moldings, ceilings, TNG type stuff, they want a more consistent color. And this is where steaming comes into play. The steam and the moisture kind of washes through all those chemicals and it, it, prevents that wild variance in color, but it also kind of washes that out into the sapwood and it blurs that stark line between heartwood and sapwood and turns it into kind of more of a gradient. It extends certainly the amount of heartwood you get, but it also doesn't make that such a stark contrast, meaning there's more usability in this. But yes, it does kind of mute the color. And if you get yourself an air-dried, unsteamed piece of walnut and hold it up to a steamed and kiln-dried piece of walnut, they almost look like different species. But each has their place. And this is one of those species, much like beech last month, that is very amenable to steaming. It does really good things. And I think, you know, for the commercial species of walnut, it probably does more good than bad. And that's why steaming is so incredibly common. The one thing, however, about that kind of gnarly nature of the tree is that walnut has very specific grading rules. Now, in North America, we go by the North, um, North American Hardwood Lumber Association grading rules, FAS, Select, and Common. Those are the, the three grades and there are variations in there among those, number one, number two, number three, Common, etc. The walnut grading rules are different than you know, maple and red oak and things like that, because the tree is a little bit gnarlier, sometimes it doesn't grow as big or as wide. So like FAS for NHLA um, says that 83.3% of the board is free of defects and you should be able to get a board that is six inches wide by eight feet long, that is 83%. It's really a cutting grade. It's not so much appearance and worried so much about defects. It's how large of a board can you get within this allowable limit of defects. So the walnut grade, um, it reduces the, the allowable percentage down to 80%. So it's a minor change there, but it also reduces the cutting size. So typical FAS saying, uh, um, you know, a six by eight board with a minimum cutting size of four inches by six feet. For walnut, it says it's 80% clear of defects on a four inch wide by three foot board or a three inch wide by six foot board. So it reduces the cutting size a little bit to allow more boards to meet the grade. And yes, I recognize that's kind of silly. Essentially, you're lowering the bar, but it would mean that FAS walnut would be incredibly rare um, and you might actually run into all kinds of other economic issues that come from that. This is not uncommon. There are generally rules per most species, but the other thing that you can say is if you're looking for really, really high quality walnut, you can ask for walnut that's graded using red oak rules. And that's going to give you, that's more stringent. It's going to require that larger cutting face and that higher percentage of clearness. And um, a lot of places will sell this as superior grade walnut. There's really no such thing as superior grade in NHLA grading system. But what that means is it's walnut being graded on red oak rules or maple rules in order to give you that um, less tolerance for 
defect and larger cutting sizes. So it does mean that, you know, the walnut can grow to meet those cutting sizes, but it's rarer. And certainly walnut is not going to be a dominant species in like a maple and oak dominated forest, but it will do okay in that forest. Like I said, it will, it will not sprout branches. It'll go straight up the canopy to get its light, but there's going to be one walnut, you know, for every 10 maples in there. So obviously being able to stretch it by reducing that grade does, you know, stretch that walnut tree a little bit further. Now, from all those colors and all that stuff that we love about walnut, that's kind of a red flag too. Um, think of any species that has a lot of really vibrant colors, and generally there's some toxicity issues. You know, coca blow is the first species that comes to mind. Purples and grays and orange and red and all kinds of stuff, and get the dust on your skin and you break out knives. Um, walnut may not be quite that extreme, but um, it does produce the enzyme juglun, which is what gives it a bad rap when they say don't use walnut shavings for like animal bedding. I know specifically horses can be particularly sensitive to it. Um, you know, rabbits and guinea pigs and things like that might become sick to it. There's also this thought that you don't want to plant tomato plants around a walnut tree because that um, juglun enzyme or chemical can actually kill those other smaller plants. So there's a lot of talk saying, you know, don't plant your walnuts next to your maple tree because it'll kill the maple tree. Recently, and by the way, this is called a leliopathy. That's what that cool Scrabble word is. Um, that's that botanical thing that says it puts an enzyme out into the soil that um, inhibits competition. It's attacking what's around it in order to, to get all the nutrients for itself. I feel like this has been overstated in Walnut. And actually, one of my favorite podcasts, Completely Arbitrary, talks about this in the Walnut. They did an episode specifically on Walnut. And they talk about how some documentation says that the, the alleliopathic effects of Walnut are not nearly as overstated as they really are. And it might be more like, you know, urban. I want to call it urban legend. Rural legend. Um that it is actually as toxic as it is. I do think there are certain plants that are more prone to it, like tomatoes, and there are certain animals that are gonna be more prone to it, like horses. But I do know several people that have problems with walnut dust and it like makes them super, super stuffy and it can actually make them break out and in a rash because there is a lot of stuff. There's a lot of chemicals in that wood to create those crazy colors and it can be a bit of a problem. For that matter, walnut trees produce walnuts and nut allergies are an incredibly common thing this day. My wife, for example, is allergic to walnuts. And it's the same chemical composition that can create that. So someone who is particularly nut allergy prone might have problems with walnuts. Now, as with most things, you want to stay away from the dust and you want to make sure you're putting a finish over the wood that's going to cure and protect it against that. Walnut is certainly not the most toxic of species. There's a lot out there, but it is something to be aware of. It can be a bit of a sensitizer to humans when it comes to uh, dealing with the dust. And the biggest thing I tell people, if you're using your wood shavings for like bedding for pets, maybe not your walnut shavings. Let's talk a little bit about the tree itself. Um, as I said, it is it is a tall tree, about 100 to 130 feet tall. Um, it will branch if given room, but it's a it's a sun tree. It wants sun, so it if there's if it's in a forest, it's going to shoot up and get the sun, so it's not going to branch. It can be anywhere from three to five feet in diameter. Um, so a really good lumber tree. It's native to the eastern United States, although these days you will find it in Oregon and you will find American black walnut 
all across Europe as well. Um, certainly since it was so popular, people started cultivating it over there too. So you've got Juglans nigra competing with Juglans regia. There's also a bunch of other kind of variants to the black walnut all across North America. Clara walnut or Juglans californica. Um, there's another, there's another uh, binomial name for that as well that I'm forgetting, like Hindisi or something like that. It's the same tree seed, Juglans californica and Juglans Hindisi or Clara walnut. Similar, but I think a little bit wilder in color, a little bit gnarlier and branchy because it grows in coastal areas. But you're also going to find all kinds of different variations on the black walnut across North America. And there's going to be subtle differences in, in density and hardness just based on how it grows. Some of the walnuts will grow in wetter climates and they're going to grow denser. So they're going to be slightly darker and harder on the Jenka scale. Walnut is mostly a riparian tree, meaning it's growing in areas kind of as that barrier between um between the, the wetlands and the highlands. Not quite lowlands, kind of in the middle region, if you will. So trees that, uh, walnut variants that are grow in wetter areas are gonna be different. Walnut trees that grow in higher mountain, more drier areas are gonna be less dense, maybe lighter in color. Let's talk hardness. This number is a little varied depending upon sources you check. I've often quoted walnut as 950 foot pounds on the Jenka scale. Uh, you'll see a thousand, you'll see a thousand ten thrown around. I think again, you know, Jenka numbers tend to be averaged. Um, and I think that you're gonna find a lot of variance based on the natural geographic range is essentially east of the Mississippi. <laughs> That's a pretty wide range. And depending on where it grows, you're gonna find a lot of, of difference there. But really, the whether it's 1,000, 1,010, or 950 or whatever, it's the kind of semi-ring porous structure that I think makes it work really well. Um, it is a pretty predictable tree as far as like hand planing and cutting it. Um, it's got medium sized pores in the early growth. And then as you move into the late growth, they move into smaller pores, but they're definitely um, grouped in that kind of semi ring porous with like a gradient into diffuse. And I think that consistency because of the way they're spaced through the non poured part of the wood does mean that it works just really well. So 1,000, 1,010, 950, it's all in that range. It is a semi-ring porous wood. Um, MOR is 14,600, MOE 1.6 million. So to compare that, I often use hickory as the gold standard. When it comes to a really, really stiff and strong bending strength wood, hickory is kind of at the top of it. So hickory um, is 20,000 versus walnuts 14.6,000 um, on its, uh, its bending strength. The stiffness of hickory is 2.1 million versus 1.6, 1.7 million for walnuts. So it kind of gives you uh, an idea. It's about two thirds as stiff uh, and as strong on a bending side uh, as hickory. Good co uh, comparison there. Um, uh, density slash weight, 44 pounds per cubic foot. Movement, um, the TR ratio is 1.4. So 7.8 tangential, 5.5 radial, pretty stable. You know, it's no EPA at a one TR ratio, but it's certainly a lot better than European beach that we looked at last month that was like 2.1 TR ratio there. 
Um, one of the things about like gluing and finishing it, it tends to be quite thirsty. If you're using steamed walnut, uh, it will be quite thirsty. Air dried, it's not going to suck up the glue and the finish quite so much. But since most of what we're using these days is kiln dried and steamed, you will find that it it will take a lot of finish when you're finishing it. Um, certainly, it is the gold standard when it comes to cabinetry and furniture making. That's primarily what it's used for. Um, even when I'm seeing it being used in like the boat building industry, it's being used for interior cabinetry and interiors in the boat itself. It is a cabinet making wood. Um, like I said, kind of a unique attribute is it's really, really colorful when left unsteamed and it's got a very dramatic workability difference between air dried and kiln dried, um, much more so than any other species I've worked with. And most of the, I, I can say that I've worked air dried most of the domestic species, I've worked air dried and kiln dried. In walnut, it's a dramatic night and day difference in the workability. It's also a night and day difference in the actual appearance and the color of it. Now, as far as cost, this is probably one of the most, if not the most dom expensive domestic North American species that's out there. The price will rival many of the exotics. Um, it'll be more than most of the more common exotics, like African mahogany, way cheaper than black walnut now. You'll find black walnut can sometimes be three times more expensive than African mahogany now, anyway. Um, some of the, the more common African species, like Cepelian utile, you will find will come in under than walnut. Certainly walnut's gonna be substantially more than maple and way more than poplar. It is a luxury wood in every sense of the word. Um, what can I say about my personal impressions of this wood? I love it. It's my favorite species. I've worked black walnut. I've worked English walnut. I've worked nogal or Peruvian walnut. I've worked Clara walnut. I've even worked its cousin butternut or white walnut. Um, walnut just finishes beautifully. It doesn't really require pore filling. I suppose if you want that super, super, super like high gloss mirror French polish, you might need to do some pore filling, but you probably could do that by like wet sanding the finish. It doesn't require much to fill the pores. Um, you know, a beautiful chocolate brown color, put like an oil over top of it and you get a little hint of amber and it gets really rich. Use a, um, a water-based finish, more of a white finish. You're gonna get those deep browns and purples coming out of the walnut. Um, chops, mortise is fantastic, planes fantastically, doesn't kick up a huge amount of dust. It's just the perfect fine woodworking wood. Absolutely love this stuff. Cannot recommend it enough. I've built so much out of it. I just love it. Um, but yeah, it's expensive. So if you're looking for some alternatives, well, here's some other expensive alternatives. Clara walnut's probably going to be more expensive. English walnut, it's gettable. There are certainly North American yards that are carrying it. Of course, if you're in Europe, you're going to get Juglans regia or English walnut pretty easily. Peruvian walnut or nogal is a good alternative that's actually a pretty good price. If you go to a place that imports exotics, Peruvian walnut now has come down in price quite a bit. It's a darker, denser version. In many ways, it's similar to Claro in that it's got kind of dark and lighter, you know, dark chocolate and milk chocolate bands that give it a little bit more interesting look. The thing with Nogal is it can be prone to cell collapse if it's dried too quickly. So just be cautious who you're buying from there. But it's a, it's definitely that chocolate brown wood alternative. 
Butternut, of course. Butternut is in the Euglens genus. Um, it's 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 kind of a light brown color, beautiful wood in and of itself, but you'll find workability be very similar, if not better, because it's a softer version. Um, sweet gum, that's a great domestic species that doesn't get a lot of play, but is still pretty readily available because the trees grow everywhere and the trees produce super long, straight central trunks. So it makes good lumber wood. I think of sweet gum as like a cross between walnut and cherry. Um, a little bit more interesting than just, you know, chocolate brown cherry. It's going to have chocolate brown with the bits of red kind of interspersed into it. This may come as a surprise to people, but a really good alternative to walnut is soft maple. Obviously, the color is not at all different. It's a complete contrast being a white wood, but workability of soft maple is going to be quite similar. And due to the lower density of soft maples compared to hard maple, it will actually take pigment. And because it's white already, it's kind of like why do you put a primer coat on before you apply red paint? Because the red's going to show up better. You already kind of have that primer coat on your soft maple and you can add a, a fair amount of color and use it as um, a walnut lookalike, especially if you're using something like walnut plywood, which is going to be quite a bit lighter looking than solid walnut. If you want to blend that color, a good trick is using soft maple and adding tint to the soft maple and you'll get that lighter kind of more washed out walnut look that's common in walnut plywood. And then out of left field, a good alternative to walnut is thermally modified poplar. It looks almost exactly like walnut. It's crazy stuff and it's thermally modified. So it's going to be dimensionally stable as well. Um, there's more. There are some other exotic species that could be alternatives, but they just get harder and harder to come by. Just about every continent has its version of walnut. There, you know, there are African walnuts, which is also known as Ipe in some circles. There's Australian or Queensland walnut. Um, there are variations on Asian walnut, South American walnuts, not just Nogal or Peruvian walnut. There are several species in South America that get walnut tacked onto it. Walnut in many ways is like mahogany. You know, mahogany is luxurious and, and, and very expensive. So we tack mahogany on the everything. African mahogany, Peruvian mahogany, Bolivian mahogany. You know, um, walnuts become the same way. Put walnut on it and automatically you can sell it for $2 more because it's got walnut on it. But man, if you haven't had a chance to work with it yet, do it. It's worth bringing the extra money for it and at least one project. Um, you will be spoiled and have a hard time going back once you've tried walnut. And yeah, there's a bad uh, pun that could come from that. But I'm going to move on. Let's answer some emails. And actually, let's stick with walnut. I kind of hinted to this earlier, but uh, Robert, actually Robert's a hand tool school member and he built a beautiful walnut table the other day. And he said, uh, I was talking to him in uh, the hand tool school community about how walnut is thirsty. Um, and he said, I noticed that you mentioned walnut as a thirsty wood, but also, it's not an open poured wood. So why is it so thirsty? Um, I can confirm that it's thirsty because after three coats of tongue oil, um, I still get dry spots. It's still soaking it up. It finally started layering and sealing after the third coat, and that seemed like a lot. So why? Why is walnut so thirsty? So as I said, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but there's a couple things at play here. First, relatively speaking, it is a larger poured wood. And as I said, in the early growth, the pores are larger than the pores in the late growth. So they are kind of, you know, compared to maple, the pores are kind of large. 
Um, but because the pores get smaller, it comes across as a closed poured wood, not an open poured wood like like red oak. But compare it to maple or beech or even poplar, it's got substantially larger pores. That semi-ring porous nature means that there is that gradient of pore structure. And I find those larger pores at, at the one end of that gradient suck in more moisture. Um, and, and the uh, denser sections will uh, not absorb. Um, so you kind of get a, a mixture of both there. Um, over the course of the annual ring though, from early to let go, including both of them, I think there's a greater percentage of open pores than the smaller pores. So it's going to suck up a lot more than something like maple. The second thing to think about is that gnarly nature of the tree itself. With it branching early and often um, when it's got the sun, um, even a, a, a somewhat managed lumber tree will have a lot of meandering and swirly grain. And swirly grain basically just means ingrain. You know, that's what causes figure. And walnut is quite prone to curly figure. Curl is just ingrain showing through. So if you've got ingrain showing through on your face, that's more pores that are going to soak up a lot more of the finish. All those changes in density to the fibers is basically ingrain showing itself, sucking up more moisture, whether that be finish or that be glue. And then finally is the steamed nature of nearly 100% of commercially available walnut. Um, the steamed pushes that heavier, denser, crazy color material from the center of the tree, from the heartwood into the sap. So this does increase the density and the color of the sap, but it also reduces the density and the color of the heartwood. So it kind of evens it out. Um, and we do that to extend that heartwood, but it also reduces the overall density of the wood itself, meaning more dead space, more space to soak up finish and to soak up glue, just making it overall a pretty thirsty wood. European Beach, which I featured last month, is thirsty when it's steamed, barely takes finish at all when it's not steamed. And it's the, and, and beach is a very closed poured, very, you know, uh, it doesn't take color very well because it's kind of like maple in that, but you steam it and now it takes color a little bit better and it takes glue better and it soaks up a lot more finish. Unsteamed beach can actually be difficult to work with for that same reason. So walnut, we steam it to blend out the color, but the upside to that is you end up with one that's gonna take a whole lot of finishing. So if you normally apply four coats of your favorite varnish to this, you're probably gonna end up having to put five or six on that piece you build out of walnut. My next question comes from Mike. And he says, you've talked about kiln drying and how it affects the cellular structure of wood. I am a violin bow maker and have been trying to use more alternatives to Pernambuco in my making. I've spoken about this in the recent CITES convention of parties and how Pernambuco is now Appendix 1. Um, so Mike goes on to say, so far, good substitutes for Pernambuco are Catalox, Bloodwood, and Ipe. But an issue I'm having is where a lot of bows are breaking is when I'm doing the initial bending, which is done over dry heat, not steam bent. My understanding is that at a certain temperature, the lignin softens and then you can bend the stick as you need. And then as it cools, it resets where you held it. This is the traditional way to bend bows. Recently, I've had a lot of non-Pernambuco sticks break on me, sometimes almost perpendicular to the grain. 
A few bow makers who are not familiar with alternative woods have said it could be because these woods are kiln dried as opposed to most Pernambuco in the U.S., which, to my knowledge, was brought back by bow makers and was not imported the same way lumber is traditionally bought through a lumber yard. So it means it's air dried. Um, Pernambuco is usually air dried and any Pernambuco that I have used for many decades, there's no been, con been no concern about it being too wet or to have bugs or anything like that. So my question is, is it possible that kiln drying these woods is making them more difficult to use for this purpose? And is it possible to get any of these woods air dried? It seems like ebony is often sold as air dried, I assume because it wouldn't survive kiln drying, but that's one of the few exotics that I see being sold as air dried lumber. Um, you're absolutely right. Ebony is an absolute nightmare to sell air dried because it is so dense. Um, it, it checks horribly. The wastage is much, much higher. And the wood is so high and so dense and stable and so black to begin with that kiln drying is not really going to do much for you to help there. Um, so yes, catalogs, bloodwood, and, and ipe, not a lot of air drying there. Um, ipe, of course, is the king of tropical decking woods. It is almost entirely sold and milled in Brazil into decking. Um, in fact, it can be a, a Lasiak violation if you bring in ipe that is not already molded into an S4S E4E deck board. It's possible to bring in like rough sawn ipe, but it requires some additional transformation in order to be compliant with local Brazilian law and therefore be compliant with the U.S. Lacey Act. So 9.9 .9 out of 10 boards of ipe that you get will be kiln dried in a decking board. Now the kiln dried may not be the same as kiln dried, like North American kiln dried standards are six to 8%. European standards are 12 to 15%. A lot of ipe is quote, kiln dried to European standards um, because it will behave better in an exterior decking environment than a six to 8%. Um, a lot of ipe being sold into desert climates, being sold out of the Rocky Mountains and in Arizona and California is actually kiln dried to six to 8%. It's gonna be a little bit different than the ipe that would be sold like where I am on the East Coast. That's gonna be a European standard of 12 to 15%. So you could get away with um, maybe some better bending woods if you're sourcing ipe from an East Coast yard. I don't know where Mike is geographically speaking, but let's be real, ipe is very dense, very, very hard. It's going to be brittle. The harder the wood is, the more brittle it's going to become. So if it's at all kiln dried, you're gonna have some issues. So it is possible to get air dried, but what you're gonna require is probably reaching out to an ipe sawmill directly. And this would be an opportunity for uh, like violin bow makers. And there are several trade or organizations. There are trade organizations for orchestral instruments in general. These are the organizations that spoke on behalf of Pernambuco at the COP19 um, CITES deal. Maybe those conventions, those organizations need to put their heads together to think about sourcing some of these alternatives. Because what I'm talking about with ipe, I can speak with ipe with great authority because we sell a lot of ipe. Like we have a whole shed full of ipe. Um, Bloodwood and catalogs you're gonna find will have similar applications here in North America. They're used for tropical decking woods. And when they're not used for tropical decking woods, they're sawn into boards and sold in smaller retail quantities that are kiln dried to six to 8%. They don't really have 
uh, a niche usage like Pernambuco does. So if you're going to, what's going to provide success for other bow, violin bow making woods is those trade associations to be reaching out to the Somas directly saying, we have a market for this species. We need you to set aside a certain amount that you saw. And the good news is, is you don't need huge long boards. You can get, get away with shorter blanks. So the transformation that's required in order to meet U.S. Lacey regulations could be the cutting into smaller blanks and the S4Sing of, you know, think of like a, you know, a pool cue blank. Um, obviously, you need something slightly longer than that, slightly thicker, but turning it into a blank will be enough transformation to make it now legal. Um, and you could bringing in, you could start bringing in air dried material. That's going to be the long game to make that happen. The short game, that's a tough road to hoe, Mike. You're going to, anybody who's selling catalogs and bloodwood, it's going to be kiln dried because those are primarily going to be retail yards and smaller quantities. Lots of large yards selling huge quantities of ePay. The best you can go for is that European standard. So what I would say is if you're trying ePay, verify what the what level it's dried to. And if you are in fact getting six to eight percent ePay, see if you can source out a European standard and see how that goes. And I'm I'm very curious here. I've spoken on the Omo podcast, that's a violin makers podcast about this alternatives for tone wood and things like that. Um, I would love to hear from someone in the field let me know how it goes with bending um, higher air dried or higher kiln dried standards of ePay. It is most definitely the kiln drying that's doing this. When you kiln dry, you are hardening those cell walls. You're making the wood more brittle. You are decreasing the bending strength that is natural within the wood itself. And with a really, really dense hard wood like any of those three species you mentioned, that slight reduction in strength, that slight tendency towards more brittleness is gonna be pretty dramatic. And by dry bending, by heat bending like you're doing, you're not, you are, you're softening the lignin, but you're not softening some of the other cellulose fibers. And that spring back that you're liable to see could be a greater problem. Um, and I'm starting to speak a little out of school here, not being a bow maker, but um, speaking from a technical, from a scientific perspective, I guarantee you that's what's going on with those kiln dried woods. You could try longer application of heat, um, maybe a slight increase in heat. Be careful, you don't wanna burn it. Um, and then holding in the form longer and creating a form that is an exact, like 100% support along the bend. So rather than like, you know, clamping between two ends and holding it in the bend, building a positive and negative press that's going to support it completely and also support it during the bend. So using things like metal straps as you stretch around the bend, it's going to support the convex side of the bend 100% and then putting the negative of the form in, that may help. Now what's difficult there is, is you're applying you know, heat bending a lot of times over like a heated pipe, you're applying heat over a very small area. What you would need is a larger diameter thing that you can apply heat over a wider area and bend that way. So maybe by changing how you're heating, the amount of heat, duration of heat, possibly the temperature of the heat, you might find that a kiln dried dense species like bloodwood, catalox, or ipe could be done. 
Again, this is, I just made this up right now. I'm just thinking on the fly here. I'm thinking about how I bend string inlay because I do it the same way, like a, you know, a blowtorch heating up a pipe and bending it over the pipe. So um, I don't know, be interested to, to hear how those experiments go. And please, Mike, let me know. And if there are bow, other bow makers out there who you know, are picking up what I'm putting down here, understanding what I'm talking about, let me know. I would love to hear how that goes. Last question is from Alex about sticker stain. Um, he is running into some instances on several of the slabs that he's sawn. He never quite knew what the shadow was, and he finally determined that it has a name. It's called sticker stain. Actually, officially, it's called sticker shadow um, because with grading roll, stain has another connotation um, that has to do with um, fungus. Um, so sticker shadow is the official term to it. Sticker stain may be a misnomer, but that's the name that's stuck. What is it? Well, it's exactly that. It's kind of a shadow across the board that happens to be exactly where the sticker that was in between the boards was in the kiln. And sticker stain is caused by essentially drying too slowly with heat and humidity. So it's about 94 degrees outside right now. And the humidity, especially because thunderstorms are about to hit, the humidity is probably 75%. Terrible stuff for wet lumber. Um, and if I've got lumber, wet lumber sitting in my quote, air drying yard in this type of temperature, you've got the perfect opportunity for fungus and bacteria to grow. And that's ultimately what sticker stain is. It's chemical reactions in the wood that could create fungus, or maybe it's not creating fungus. It's just um, speeding up or catalyzing the chemical reaction with the natural chemicals in the wood. So some species are more prone to this than others. Some, you know, just about all species are going to uh, encounter it, but you can't see it. Where this really shows up is in the whiter woods and the lighter colored woods where the stain, you know, that shadow is much more obvious than something like, you know, walnut where the shadow doesn't show up at all. Um, it's that chemical reaction that's happening in the wood that's just made easier because it's really hot and wet outside. So um, people that may stack and sticker in a warm, moist climate and leave it there for some time are going to run into issues of this. So certain species are more prone to this than others. And there is some reason to say, when I just saw that, that log into boards, I want to get it into the kiln right away. Uh, holly is the one that always comes up. Due to the chemical reaction that happens with wet holly, you're going to get mineral streaking and staining that goes from that pure white holly to kind of a washed out blue gray. That's like holly. When holly goes, quote, bad, that's sticker stain. It's just not along the direction of the stickers. The stickers pose the problem because now you've got wood contacting wood in a warm, moist area, and you're going to get that chemical reaction happening right where that wood contact is happening. The worst part about sticker stain is sometimes it doesn't show up until it's actually been dried, until the moisture gets down below 15%, and the rest of the wood starts to dry out for the shadow to actually come up. This does happen on quite a few woods. It's generally an indication that someone doesn't quite know what they're doing doing um, with their kiln, or that, that sounds very accusatory. Maybe they aren't familiar with drying white woods, or maybe they live in a particularly warm, moist climate, and they need to possibly let their lumber gravity dry and pull more of that moisture out, or they need to increase the amount of ventilation because it's super hot and humid outside, and you've got to turn up the fan in order to get some cooler air, some drier air blowing over that to prevent sticker stain. Um, 
there's also some instances where say when it's super hot and wet, maybe don't saw that log into boards right now. If it's particularly prone to sticker stain or it's a white wood that's going to show the stain, um, you might want to wait on sawing that maple log until things dry out a little bit. Maybe you saw that in the fall. As far as getting rid of it, I can't really help you here. Um, again, it will vary from species to species, but it's generally pretty deep. Um, it's not something that you can just like take a quick, you know, pass through the planer and it'll be gone. It sometimes can take two to three passes or a really heavy cut in the planer. And you can sizably reduce the thickness of your board just to get rid of that sticker stain. Um, it will, and, and you think you got rid of it and then you apply finish and that sticker stain comes back as the oil or whatever the finish soaks deeper in that normal kind of three dimensionality that comes from an oiled finish that brings up the sticker stain and suddenly it comes back again. And it's incredibly frustrating and it actually is known. It is a defect according to NHLA. So if you have sticker stain and it affects with your cutting size, it will reduce the grade of your lumber. So it's a very serious thing that, like sticker stain for us at our yard is a big, big no-no. We pride ourselves in the fact we're not going to get sticker stain because we know how to use our kilns. But like I said, if you're used to drying a lot of one species and then introduce another species that may show the stain more or be more prone to the stain and you're in a stain-rich environment like a hot and humid climate, you maybe are stacking the cards in the favor of stain. You're going to end up with it. So I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers and say, if you have sticker stain, that's somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. There's so many factors that come into play. This person can still be a very competent kiln operator and sawmiller, uh, lumber yard, but sometimes it happens. Um, and it's very difficult to refute. The best way to handle it, if you have it, is the application of color. Add pigment to the wood to darken the rest of the wood and, and hide the sticker stain. So it's a tough one, but um, you know, if you're running into it on a board, it is a valid case to go back to the lumber yard and say, hey, I'm getting sticker stain. That's a defect. Either reduce my price or take the wood back. Um, or if you continue to see it from the same yard, that's an opportunity to say, maybe I shop somewhere else because they're not paying attention. Or if they're not doing the drying, you need to tell that lumber yard, hey, whomever you're buying from has a lot of sticker stain. Stop buying from them. Use a better, better supplier. And I think that brings us to the end of the show. Um, great questions, everybody. Um, and uh, again, if you are interested in these featured species stickers, go to patreon.com slash lumber update, become a walnut tier subscriber. That's just $8 a month and you get this fancy sticker. Oh, you get a lumber update um, logo sticker as well. So thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. Thank you for the questions. Lumberupdate.com is where you can submit those questions. And until next time, go buy some hardwood, but go buy some walnut. If you haven't worked with walnut yet, do yourself the favor. Go buy some walnut.